Good evening. This is Quintus Curtius, and I'm here with Fortress of the Mind Publishing to bring you another podcast in our series. And I got the idea to make this podcast from reading some of the comments of readers who have sent me suggestions and things they'd like to see from my books. And so based on that, I thought I would try to read the prologue of the book Pantheon, which was a book I published in March of this year. And I think it's a good way to frame the importance of persistence in struggle. Now, this prologue of Pantheon is a work of fiction, although it's based on fact. It's essentially describing the discovery of King Tut's tomb in the Valley of the Kings in the 1920s by Howard Carter. And this really happened, obviously. But the specifics of this prologue are entirely my creation, entirely fanciful. I read some accounts of the actual discovery, and so I know in general how it took place, but um, this is a work of fiction, but a work of historical fiction nonetheless. So let's begin with the prologue for Pantheon. And this book can be purchased on Amazon by looking, by searching under uh, Quintus Curtius or under simply the title Pantheon, or you can go to my website, qcurtius.com, and find it there under the tab Books. And now we'll begin Prologue of Pantheon. The coldest part of the night was the hour just before dawn. And then dawn came first slowly, and then gathering a luminous momentum of confident finality. The murmurs of the Egyptian workmen floated up from the valley floor with an oral prominence greater than the import of their content. It always was like this in the early morning hours, thought Howard Carter. The smallest sound seemed to reverberate off the large, neat piles of limestone rubble that littered the surroundings, and from there reflected off the jagged walls near the northeast edge of the Valley of Kings. The hard letter Gim of Egyptian colloquial Arabic, as spoken by the workmen, complemented nicely this hard, rocky setting, he mused. He weighed this observation again and became pleased with himself for this unexpected linguistic insight. All around him, heaps of sand and stone chips shielded the entrances to tombs already discovered and fully exploited. Off to his left, a conical workman's hut stood directly across from the entrance to the burial site of Merneptah, and in the opposite direction, one could just about make out the stone wall that marked the entrance to the tomb of Ramses IV. Carter raised a bottle of tepid water, infused with a bit of tea to his lips, and drank pensively, eyeing the strange effects played by the sunlight over miles of empty limestone desolation that stretched off into the distance. Small flies hovered over the bridge of his nose, but he refused to wave them away. He was too tired. He recalled an Egyptian Arabic proverb. A fly is just a fly, 
but it is still loathsome. In Arabic. This was what he found most unnerving about Egypt, the sandblasted, gritty, stony quality of so many things. It was the deprivation of color sense, the loss of vivid blues, greens, reds, and other primary colors. And in their place was an oppressive sepia tone, as if the severity of the environment washed the life out of the landscape. Even the buildings in Cairo looked like they had been made of sand. He could take the heat, the squalor, the government, the tourists, and the perverse torpor of the fellahin. But there was something about the sandy nothingness that surrounded him that left him feeling perched on civilization's lip, and perhaps the lip of sanity itself. I want to eat colors, to taste them, and to wash myself in them, he thought. He marveled at the turn of fate that had brought him to this point. In 1914, he and his patron, Lord Carnarvon, and how much he did appreciate that man, had succeeded in transferring the archaeological concession of Theodore Davis over to themselves. Davis, an American, had done quite well for himself in the Valley of the Kings, and had decided the time had come to move on before ambition outpaced funding. Both Carter and his charismatic partner shared a belief that there were still great things hidden in the Valley of the Kings, but it was not a belief shared by many others. A century before, the explorer Giovanni Belzoni had declared, after discovering the tombs of several pharaohs, that the site was simply exhausted. Nothing of significance would be found there, he declared. Another noted archaeologist, the German Richard Lipsius, expressed the same belief. Carter smiled to himself when he remembered how the Cairo bureaucrats who had handled the paperwork for his concession had warned him that he was wasting his time in the Valley of the Kings. And yet, something drove him on. At times, he realized that there really was something mystical about his belief in his mission. Carter was an energetic man of uncommon moral courage. He despised arrogance and injustice and had proven his backbone on more than one occasion. He had personally intervened to stop grave robbers at great risk to himself. Here, there were whole families that made a living by trafficking in antiquities obtained by pilferage. Another incident that was yet more revelatory of, of Carter's character. When he had first been employed by the Egyptian Antiquity Service years before, he had observed a group of drunken French tourists provoke an altercation with some Egyptian guards. And when he permitted the guards to defend themselves from assault, the tourists had lodged a formal complaint against Carter with his superiors. Ordered to apologize for the tourists, he had refused, and finding himself thereafter blackballed with the antiquity service, he resigned from his service with his dignity intact in 1905. Perhaps he thought it was all part of some grand design, for that sad incident had eventually brought him to where he was now. He knew that he loved his quest and needed it. It fulfilled some deep inner longing that he had to penetrate the unknown in an unknown land. But Carter was no idle dreamer. 
He was driven by cold, hard evidence. Like the best hunters, scientists, astronomers, and doctors, his powers of perception were acute and uncanny. Where others saw only a potsherd or a fleck of flint, he could read a page. His exhaustive research into the primary sources had led him to notice that the tomb of one obscure pharaoh, Tutankhamun, had somehow faded from the historical record. His reign could be identified in the king lists and the chroniclers, but no artifacts of significance had surfaced over the centuries that would indicate his tomb had been plundered. And this very fact, the absence of any artifacts bearing the king's markings, was one of the major reasons why Carter believed that Tutankhamun's tomb still lays intact somewhere in the valley. But there were other clues that the sepulchre existed. What was required was the right person to read and interpret the clues. His predecessor, Theodore Davis, had not quite been up to the task. He had unearthed a cup with Tutankhamun's name on it. Nearby, he had also found a wooden box inscribed with the boy pharaoh's name. The final clue was even more significant. In the same general areas as the other finds, Davis had located several old jars of linen and detritus, which scientific analysis revealed had likely been used in a burial site. So there was something. It was not much, but it was something. And where one man saw nothing but a few scraps of plaster, a few chips of pottery, a man like Carter was able to see something more. But where to look? It was all well and good to have faith in the observable clues, but the clues needed to be acted on. And the Valley of the Kings was a vast place, which even in Carter's day had been scoured and poured over with an exhaustive thoroughness. It seemed like the longest of probabilities that anything new of significance would be found there. Carter knew full well how friends and colleagues snickered behind his back, shaking their heads at the credulity of this passionate Englishman who was wasting his energies among the chips of limestone in the Valley of the Kings. Only the eccentric Carnivan had stood by him, urging him on, providing a source of consolation and funding that is one of the most pleasant entries in the annals of archaeology. Carter shifted slightly on the crest of the mound where he sat. A ripple of pebbles rolled down the surface of the mound, and he kicked at them with the heel of his boot. Again, he raised to his lips the bottle of water, wrapped in gray linen to protect it from the knocks that were an inevitable part of fieldwork. His legs were cramped, and his upper back ached with fatigue. Hours of hunching over holes and crevices had not done his posture any good, and he knew he needed to take better care of himself. But the time was not on his side. Carnivan was beginning to lose patience with the lack of progress. He was working on the clock and was acutely aware of the need for making each day as productive as possible. This was what pained him most. He knew that his patrons supported him fully, and he had wanted to demonstrate for him a find of suitable magnitude that might vindicate the patience Carnivan had shown him over the years. But nothing was happening. Several years of effort had yielded little except frustration. Their original plan had seemed to make good sense, though. If Tutankhamun's tomb did exist, as they felt in their bones, 
than it would have to have been hewn into the bedrock at the floor of the Valley of the Kings. When the two of them had conducted surveys in the valley floor several years prior, they believed that the most likely location of the tomb would be in the general region where the Tutankhamun clues had been discovered by Theodore Davis. Carter decided to dig in an area bounded by the already discovered tombs of Merneptah, Ramses VI and Ramses II. This, he believed, was a plan that offered the best hope of success. It was a logical one, but one based on the slenderest of evidence. He was proceeding more on faith than on fact, and he would have been the first to acknowledge this. But he had confidence and possessed a boundless capacity for work, and this was enough. A year of steady work had caused Carter to reach one of the boundaries of his area of excavation, which was the tomb of Ramses VI. As they approached this limit, something unexpected happened. Carter discovered a series of workmen's dwellings. These little huts presumably had been erected in ancient times to shelter workers preparing tombs for burial. But there was no way of knowing if these huts were for tombs already discovered. Carter had wanted to press on, but he had been abruptly told to stop his excavations. Why? The answer was maudlin. Local officials feared that further digging would block the entrance to the tomb of Ramses VI, which happened to be a very popular tourist draw. So Carter had had to stop. His patron was patient, but Carter sensed that unless something of great significance happened, his funding would be cut off. At the beginning of the new year in 1920, some assorted burial materials were discovered near Ramses's tomb. This seemed promising, but still inconclusive. And so this was where things stood now, Carter mused to himself. He had excavated the entire area that he and Carnarvon had sketched out earlier. Carter, an expert draftsman, had produced sketches and drawings of marvelous detail. He had examined every fragment of evidence, every seal, every scrap of ancient linen, every funerary tool. And despite all his faith in himself and his mission, he was beginning to wonder whether the naysayers were correct. Perhaps the tomb had long ago been abandoned, filled in, or used for another purpose. His last exchange with Carnarvon had been cordial, but contained overtones of impatience. Carter knew that his days were numbered. In one last appeal, he had asked his patron to give him one more digging season in the valley. One more season, he had pleaded in near desperation. And Carnarvon had agreed. The morning light began to beat heavier on the sepia-toned walls of the valley. It was strange, he thought, how a location can impart such a spirit of place. Despite all the bustle activity that went on here, one had the feeling of an oppressive mortality that permeated every stone of the valley. It was as if the place had served host for so many tombs, for so many thousands of years, that it was geologically incapable of performing any other purpose. No matter how many living souls paraded through here, the place still felt like a mausoleum. I've been here too long. He whispered to himself. 
All these kings in this quiet, dusty valley once believed themselves to be immune from the grip of mortality and the advances of time's march. And yet, look at them now. He then recalled a passage from one of St. Jerome's letters that best captured the awesome ephemerality of so much human endeavor. The immensely powerful King Xerxes, who overturned mountains and emptied seas, when from an elevated vantage point looked down upon the numberless ranks of his vast army, is said to have wept at the realization that none of these men would be alive in a hundred years. If only we could rise to such a perspective of vision in which we might perceive the entire world under our feet. Not only Xerxes' army, but the entire world of men now alive, you would see about to pass away. My thoughts here are overwhelmed by the magnitude of this idea, and everything we say about it seems inadequate. And how true it all now seemed. The tinny sound of the workmen's brass bowls rolling about now began to fill the vicinity as the Egyptian workmen went about preparing their breakfast full madamus, that bland and ubiquitous Egyptian fava bean dish. He knew that he had done everything he could do. He rested his elbow on his knees and his chin in his hand. Flashes of anger singed his thinking. Every area had been probed. Every area had been examined. It was just then that his eyes caught an Egyptian in gray trousers pass in front of the workmen's huts at the floor of Ramses VI's tomb. And then something occurred to him which he instantly dismissed. And then the thought came to him again. And it was then that it hit him with a thunderbolt. It came to him suddenly without qualifier or equivocation. Yet he still fought the idea, saying to himself, but we've looked at every area, every area, every area, every area except one. And this last point would not leave his mind. It stayed there like an arrow affixed firmly in some shield against which it had been fired. At this point, Carter gasped. He inhaled a short breath and held it. He raised his hands to his temples and exerted a slight pressure on his head, pushing with increased effort as he played out the events of the past year on his mind. My God, he thought, it just might be true. Every area except one. Carter had initially dismissed the idea that anything might be directly under the workmen's huts. It had just seemed too improbable. Workers' huts would never be set up over the entrance to a tomb. Never, unless, unless the workers didn't know a tomb was there in the first place. And now his heart was racing, and he was almost laughing at his own myopia. We never considered what was under the workmen's huts. It was the only area not fully investigated. And now Carter stood up abruptly, letting the linen-wrapped bottle roll down the mound. He ignored it. The workers themselves might not have known. 
every area except one. He went directly to his assistant and explained to him that they needed to begin work immediately on excavating the workmen's huts and boulders near the base of the tomb of Ramses VI. The assistant looked at him dumbfounded. How can it be, Sidi? Wallah, we know there is nothing there. No, we don't know that, Carter snapped. Now get moving and round up the others. We have work to do. He was now fired by a sense of purpose that he had not felt since the beginning of work in the valley. He had just never considered exploring the area covered by the huts before. How could I have been so blind, he asked himself. Beginning in early November 1922, he and his team moved quickly to clear away the workmen's huts. Beneath the very first dwelling, one of the workers identified a stone step cut into the bedrock. Within a few days of steady clearing away of rubble and sand, a flight of steps had been discovered. At last, after the debris clearing, the twelfth step had been moved away. Carter was able to identify a sealed doorway. A close scrutiny of the seals showed that a person of very high rank was buried inside. His hands trembling with excitement, Carter and a few chosen workers bored a small hole through the door and projected through it an electric torch. It took a few moments for him to see exactly what lay behind the door, but eventually he saw that the passageway was piled with stones, deliberately arranged to impede any tomb robbers. At last, Carter thought, at last. Carter here displayed singular discipline and loyalty to his patron. He ordered work to stop temporarily until Carnivan could arrive from England and share in the discovery. A cable from England indicated that Carnivan would indeed arrive in Alexandria by November 20th. Those two weeks of waiting were the most agonizing weeks of his life. He was frantic that the tomb might be rifled by some miscreant or that it might prove to be the repository of some minor court official and not the tomb of Tutankhamun. An even more troubling thought finally came to mind. What if there was nothing inside the tomb at all? What were the chances that a fully intact royal burial chamber might be found where no one had ever found one before? And yet Carter felt his moment of glory, his moment of immortality had finally arrived. His long experience with scientific endeavor had taught him that success usually came after a long period of suffering, trial, and failure. You failed and failed, and then, after agonizing labor and fits and starts, you won. He knew what the elements of success were. Unerring faith in one's own ability, the backing of a dedicated patron, and a sustained period of grueling labor. These these were the ingredients of victory. After Carnarvon's arrival, Carter pressed ahead with his excavation. The original door was opened and the stones began to be cleared away. When they had reached 30 feet inside the passageway carved in the rock, they came upon a second door, and this door was specifically marked with the name of Tutankhamun. And so, after so many years of effort, after so much brute labor, suffering, and dashed hopes, and unrelenting struggle, the moment of truth had finally arrived. Carter bored a small hole in the upper left corner of the door. Then an assistant handed him a metal rod, which he slowly inserted into the hole. He wished to allow any noxious gases that might be trapped inside to escape. 
Candles were lit to warn against the presence of methane. And now Carnivan, with his daughter, who was also present, moved in closer to share in this historic moment. Carter enlarged the hole, lit a small candle, and extended the candle inside the chamber. Then he moved his forehead up to the hole to attempt to see what was inside it. For over a minute, he could see nothing. All of his life, he later thought, had been in preparation for this moment. The blood was pounding in his ears, now growing steadily in intensity and now reaching level of uninterrupted roars. The brightness of the candle and the adrenaline pumping through his body prevented his eyes from focusing. The candle within sputtered and coughed as the warm air inside the tomb caressed it gently. Carter was faintly conscious of other people around him, but he could not perceive their voices. Everything had begun to recede from his consciousness except the ball of light burning in front of him. And now gradually his vision became adjusted to the darkness within the chamber. The lonely light casts flickering shadows across the tomb, illuminating the relics of a civilization that had not been seen by human eyes for thousands of years. Carter was awestruck. He could not speak. His lips moved, but he was unable to form syllables. And yet a strange calm had come over him, almost like a mystic in some controlled ecstasy. Carnivan pressed yet closer to him, putting his hand on his shoulder. Well, he asked breathlessly, can you see anything? Can you see anything? Carter finally turned and said, yes, wonderful things. It was all he could say. He collapsed, trembling, and sat against the side of the doorway, exhausted and shaking with the effects of the adrenaline. The blood was now pounding in his ears, reaching crescendos of sustained volume. And now all he could think was of one word, repeated over and over in his head, a chant of rhythmic insistence which rose to a roar in his ears with the pounding of his heart. Victory. 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 This concludes my reading of the prologue of my book, Pantheon. If you wish to purchase the book, you can find it on Amazon. Or if you go to my website, again, you can look under the tab of books and find it there. This broadcast was brought to you courtesy of Fortress of the Mind Publications. I'm Quintus Curtius. Good night.